Welcome to Yo Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is poet Kate Daniels, the Edward Mims Professor Emerit of English and former director of creative writing at Vanderbilt University. Daniels is the author of six collections of poetry. The White Way from 1984 won the Agnes Lynch Sterrett Poetry Prize. The Niobe Poems from 1988 received honorable mention from the Patterson Poetry Prize. Four Testimonies, 1998, and A Walk in Victoria's Secret, 2010, were selected by Dave Smith for the Southern Messenger series published by LSU Press. Three Syllables Describing Addiction was published in 2018, and In the Months of My Son's Recovery was published in 2019. Daniels has edited two volumes of Solitude and Silence, Writings on Robert Bly, and Out of Silence, Selected Poems of Muriel Rukeyser. Her most recent book, Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of psychoanalysis and poetry, was published in 2021. In 2003, Daniel served as a judge for the National Book Award in Poetry. In 2013, she was a Guggenheim Fellow in Poetry. In 2015, she was elected to the Fellowship of Southern Writers. In 2019, she was a visiting scholar at the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Virginia. Daniels has been a member of the writing faculty of the New Directions program at the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis since 2008. On April 13th, 2023, Daniels will give a reading as a guest of the University of Oregon, uh, Oregon's creative writing program. Uh, thanks, Kate, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So first, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a writer. Well, um, I was uh, born in uh, Richmond, Virginia, a very long time ago, 1953, turning 70 this year. And I happened to be, I was born into a working class family, but I happened to be the daughter of an English mother. My mother was one of the English war brides who came over here and married to a GI after World War II. Um, I've actually written about this in, in a couple of places. She happened to be, uh, even though she was raised in the working class, a member of that last generation of British kids who were um, educated with a really, uh, everyone was given a very sort of thorough literary education. A lot of her education consisted of memorization of long poems, you know, sort of long narrative, highly rhetorical, often very Victorian poems. And my mother, uh, who was a bit of a writer herself, though she never really did anything with it, um, and, and loved reading and books, um, recited these poems. Um, it's one of some of my earliest memories, and it was very delightful to me. And so my own sort of love of literature started really early. I remember uh, a, an, uh, a formative uh, incident occurred in kindergarten. I had a brand new pair, my very first pair of rain boots, red rain boots. And I came home from kindergarten the first day that I wore them accidentally having slipped on my little friend's boots and she slipped on mine. We did this accidentally. And I was in a panic about this. We were a poor family, so I had lost these brand new boots that were such a treat. And my grandmother uh, marched me back to school. I'm sobbing, I'm crying. And I had this wonderful teacher who said, well, it's okay, you know, Ruby's returned the other boots. And why don't we, why don't you write a little story about this called the mixed up boots? So I went home and that night I dictated to my mother and she wrote it down and then I illustrated it. And from then it was like off to the races. I just loved writing. I was an introverted kid, like a lot of writers are, but not all as a child. And so writing became really not just a place to go to, writing and reading, but a, a really a friend. And uh, it's always been like that. So 
would you be willing to read us a poem at this point? Sure. Um, it's hard to know which one to start with. As I was mentioning before, I'm a bit of a dark writer, um, but I'll try something that's a little less dark. Uh, I love dogs, <laughs> and I've always loved the, you know, the little uh, slogan, um, uh, what is dog spelled backwards? And so one of the things that I was trying, uh, you know, lots of poets in particular set themselves uh, exercises to keep them, their writing selves fresh. So for a period of time, a few years ago, I thought, well, maybe I'll take some of these sort of slogans, these cliches, these platitudes, and see if I can make a poem out of any of them. And this one resulted from that. <clears throat> dog spelled backwards. To see if the dog still loved me, I made myself forgo the sweet talk I usually lathered it with and screwed the top on tight of the jar of treats and made it sleep in the laundry room and left it alone in the house all day. Nevertheless, it kept the faith and still jumped up joyfully when I entered and licked me when I woke and snuggled up beside me when I settled down to watch TV. Who deserves that kind of love? Not me. Love that keeps on glowing in the dark and never asks for anything back and forgives old debts and keeps creating joy. The juicy, fresh-born smell of new life squirming in the welcoming box. Love that cursing blow I dealt it when still fashioned to its leash, it lunged against my knees and knocked me down in the street, then stood there and took the blow as the bus roared past, zooming through the vacant spot where I'd just stood. It's a powerful and interesting poem. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about it? It actually was based on an actual event as so many of my poems are, um, start from an autobiographical place. The street was Ninth Street in Durham, right around the corner from Duke University. Um, and I was with, I was uh, pregnant with my youngest child and I was with my toddler child who was quite a wild toddler. And uh, he actually lunged into the street on this rainy morning and I ran after him and pulled him back. So I guess I transformed my child into a dog. <laughs> you know, we, we both fell down in this rainy street. Um, I guess I used that, you know, autobiographical moment to sort of uh, redirect my focus and say something about dog love instead of human love. So, so um, after your BA, you worked as a nurse's aide. Mm -hmm. Looking back, do you think that experience has influenced your work as a writer and a poet? I actually think it was one of the most uh, formative influences of my entire life. And uh, I've, I've written quite a lot out of that experience. Um, I was, uh, as I grew up, as I said, in Richmond, Virginia, only about 70 miles away from Charlottesville, the University of Virginia. And um, when I graduated with my English major in 1975, uh, I did, I had no idea what I would do, what I could do, how I would support myself. I only had one very clear and determined thought, which was that if I moved back to my hometown, I was doomed and that I would in some way uh, replicate the life that I'd grown up in 
Um, and that was something that I really didn't want to do. I was the first person in the family who ever went to college. Most people had not even completed high school. So it was extremely important to me to not relive, you know, a version of, of that life. So I took a easily available job, one where I didn't need to have a car because I lived very close to campus. And it turned out to be this job. You know, they're very, they're humble jobs. You know, you're helping people. You're very intimate with people physically. People are in very debilitated states. Um, and it, it's a very intense job. I was, after a training period, I was put to work on a, uh, what was then thought of as a terminal cancer ward. Uh, because people in advanced stages of cancer, you know, had much less of a survival rate in the 1970s than they do now. And it was really a whole other education of sort. It affected me deeply. And many of the experiences that I ultimately came to write about, I was not able to write about for decades. And I had tried and tried and tried, but it just took a lot of, a lot of living and a lot of years uh, in order to be able to touch the sort of hotness of the, of the subject matter, if that makes sense. And, and then in another way, it also, of course, stimulated my interest in what later, later came to be called the medical humanities. Um, about 15 years after I had first taken that job, I moved to uh, from Baton Rouge, where I was teaching at LSU, to Durham, where um, uh, my husband had a coaching job. And the, I didn't have a job the first year that we were there. And I got a phone call out of the blue one day from a woman who identified herself as the poet in residence at Duke Medical Center and asked me to come give a poetry reading. This was the first time I ever heard anything about medical humanities or healthcare arts. And I was all in from that moment. Eventually, I became the poet in residence. And I've done a lot of work in that over the years. So uh, apropos of that, uh, your two most recent volumes of poetry Three syllables describing addiction and in the months of my son's recovery are both, as their as their titles imply, works that use poetry to grapple with various forms of social and personal trauma. And po poetry is a kind of technique for therapy. Can you say a little bit about how you understand the value of poetry in confronting and working through those kinds of traumatic experiences? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I guess I think that at its most basic level just the ways in which writing poetry or fiction for that matter any kind of art making um, draws a person into close contact with their most inner self i mean if they're really pursuing it in that way and though that is not always an uplifting or a joyous experience though it certainly can be um, i think that there is great value in those kinds of experiences, you know, know thyself. And you can't write if you do not make that journey uh, into yourself. And if you're not willing to entertain or grapple with whatever it is that you find there, however surprising it might be, um, however wonderful it might be, but however challenging it might be as well. Um, one of the most valuable things that I learned when I began uh, working as poet in residence uh, in Duke Medical Center uh, was that I, my most, um, the most helpful intervention I could offer was simply to be with people, to sit with them and to witness what it was they had to say to me. And that was a hard thing for me to do. I was a professor, you know, I wanted to like, you know, make the point, be didactic. 
And as a narrative poet who likes to have really strong, powerful, you know, very determinative closure at the end of my poems, I always wanted to like, just get to the point. And it took me, um, well, not very long, actually, working with very old people to realize that that was, there was no solution. It was the companionship, the sitting there, the witnessing, the letting myself sort of be in that space with them. And, and I found that highly transferable into my life as a writer. In the months of my son's recovery begins with the first of several powerful sequence poems, her barbaric yawp. <laughs> this is the first poem in the first section of the volume called Her. First, can you explain the poem's title and say a little bit about its significance from your perspective for the sequence as a whole? Well, the title, you know, as, as English majors who specialized in American literature will know, comes from one of the greatest lines from Walt Whitman, I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. Um, Whitman, you know, one of my er poets, Whitman and Dickinson, it's all about Whitman and Dickinson for me. Um, I fell in love with Dickinson in, um, I'm in with Whitman in college. It took me longer to fall in love with Dickinson. But um, so I've always been quite buoyed up by the spirit of his writing um, and wished, you know, I could exist more in that sort of state of mind. So, um, I mean, there's there's a quite a, you know, for lack of a better word, feminist, second wave feminist element to my poems. Many of my poems come out of my identity as that, as someone who was active in the women's movement back in the 1970s. And so I guess this poem, no, no I don't guess, I mean, I know, I, I, I sort of thought of this as my sort of manifesto poem um, about all of that. Um, it actually did come out of, uh, and as, as again, as I said earlier, a very autobiographical experience in Charlottesville, get, looking for a place to live. My fourth year is my rising, my fourth year in college as a senior. I went with some friends to look at this big sprawling apartment on the top floor of a house, an old house. And when I went into the room that turned out to be mine, um, there was a student named Gretchen who was living there. And, you know, I was like a book reading, poetry writing, glasses wearing, serious girl. And Gretchen was not like that. She was like a party girl. She had these wonderful clothes. She was messy. They were all over the place. And looking at the room and thinking, this would be a great room for me. And then I see in the corner an unwashed diaphragm. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had this epiphany. You think you're a feminist? You're like so appalled by this. So it was this very odd sort of experience. It was the kind of image that poets in particular find can stick with them for a lifetime. I mean, I can just go right back to that moment to remember exactly what it looked like and exactly what I felt like. And then the moment everything turned upside down and I reframed it in terms of her sense of liberation and my sense of sort of constriction in a way. So that's what that poem came from. And there were a number of incidents that I had sort of collected over the years um, that I wanted to, to get into the poem. A friend who had uttered some remarkable lines when she was um, giving birth to her son, a uh, time that my one of my friends here um, and I had been at lunch. We were, we were probably in our 40s, and these two young, a young couple from Vanderbilt stood over us as if we didn't exist. He said, I was so upset. It's it's because we're old, gesturing at her face, that kind of thing. So the poem is a repository for a lot of those unruly and probably unpoetic 
thoughts and ideas about second wave feminism, really. So that poem is one in a series of poems in the volume and in your work in general that are sequence poems. Tell us a little bit about why you write in sequence and what is appealing about the sequence for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, I can't really say other anything about why I write in it other than I've always been really attracted to the long form form. I mean, starting with Whitman, of course. I mean, so maybe it all goes back to Whitman, but also, you know, the prelude. I mean, I love these long poems. Struggled with Paradise Lost, but you know, these these long poems that that continue, either in a real sort of apprehensible narrative as in the prelude, or in uh, you know, a less directly narrative way as in um, Leaves of Grass. Um, I I did uh, when I first went to college. I did think I would turn out to be a fiction writer. I took lots of fiction writing. I was put into, I was, I was talented at it. And I was actually as an undergraduate put into graduate writing workshops at University of Virginia. Um, but in the end, it felt like uh, that wasn't right for me. I needed to encapsulate more. I wanted to move more toward brevity. And I also think I was too impatient at that point in my life. I couldn't maintain my energy or my interest over the enormously long period of time. I wanted to write novels, not short stories. I don't really understand short stories. I think I understand novels. So I, I think it has to do with that. Um, but you know, as much of the early history of modernist poetry has to do with long poems. So I mean, I was immediately fascinated when I began to study the wasteland all the way up through something like Patterson and then Howell. Um, one of my favorite poets is uh, Muriel Rukeyser, and she wrote lots and lots of long poems. And probably it was after reading her seriously in the early 80s that I began to do a lot of them myself. So, At this point, would you read us another poem? Yes. Let me see what we talked about. Um, you mentioned that I have for the past years been uh, writing poems about um, out of the experience of being in close relation with uh, a person who is suffering from addiction and struggling to get into recovery. And again, that's a, I mean, the title of this book is autobiographical in the months of my son's recovery. All these poems I wrote with his permission and I always read with his permission, just in case this would make anyone uncomfortable. Um, I wrote all these poems, some of which are very revealing from the perspective of the mother of a grown child. Um, who is uh, afflicted with this. And so I will read one of those. And I also want to say I am talking to you um, a week after this terrible school shooting in Nashville, and we are terribly wounded by this. And so though I think about trauma a lot and I think about healing and reparation, um, I've been thinking about it even more this past week, and it did occur to me that this poem in some way not only talks about the trauma of being in relation to someone who's struggling with alcoholism and heroin addiction, but um, the kind of trauma that we and so many other communities are going through almost daily in this country. This is called 100%. 100% is what she'll never be again, not ever whole or complete, never fit tidily back together, the way she was when she first was. Broken now, forever it feels, 
all her inner parts rearranged in new patterns she can't recognize. And though human eyes cannot discern the lines with a paste pot pasted back together all the broken scraps, she can feel the shredded edges cutting her inside everywhere the paper tore, sliding under the surface, striving for realignment with where they were before the needle loaded up and pricked through skin and found the vein and plunged. Before the junk, before the junkie who once had been her daughter or her son, before all that, back when she was of a piece, when she was whole, intact, complete, when she could still believe her child and she had once been one. Thank you for that. Such a powerful poem. Thank you. Like many of the poems in the volume, it's, it's a really powerful volume. Thank you. Your most recent volume is the work of creative nonfiction, Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of psychoanalysis and poetry. First, how did you come to write a memoir of psychoanalysis and poetry? What, what made you want to do that? Well, um, you know, like a lot of writers, like a lot of people in general, I'm a uh, proponent of psychotherapy. And... Uh, I had availed myself of it um, for all of my adult life, starting when I was in college. Uh, and um, I found uh, some writers will find that going into psychotherapy sort of uh, drains off some energy from their writing, but I did not find that. I was, it took me a long time to sort of uh, settle myself as an adult and, you know, come to terms with um, my past. And so psychotherapy helped me with all that. And, and, it is, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is uh, fundamentally a narrative process. It's a language-based narrative process. It's two people talking to each other. And the only sort of tool you have really is, you know, words, language. And so in my um, late 40s, I actually went into psychoanalysis and I didn't know very much about it at the time. I sort of fell into it in a way and ended up becoming fascinated um, by the many, many correspondences that I discerned almost immediately um, between the analytic process in particular, which involves, you know, the old cartoons of being on a couch, you know, four times a week, I went for 45 minutes and sat with this analyst who sat behind me, I lay on a couch and I talked or tried to talk. And so um, I think in a kind of struggle to deal with, the, it's a very difficult process and in the, the struggle with the difficulty of it, I think I thought one way I could sort of manage it would be to learn everything I could about psychoanalysis, probably in some horrible way, wanting to, you know, get smarter than my analyst, know more about it than she was, something terrible, I'm sure. Um, but uh, in the process, I ended up um, beginning to write about it. And I actually did keep journals the entire time I was in analysis, every single session I wrote after everyone, so I had all this raw material. And one of the first things that happened uh, on the couch almost immediately was that, uh, you know, I had this visitation, I'll call it, from Emily Dickinson, a poet I had always had to teach as an English professor who specialized in American poetry, but for whom I had never had any particular love. I mean, she's such a lyric poet, and I'm such a not lyric poet, and I appreciated her, but I did not really get her, and then all of a sudden, without any explanation 
there it was. I got her. And all these, I mean, it was just a remarkable process. All these lines I didn't know I had memorized would come to me. I'd be spouting them out as I'm lying on the couch. And so I became very interested in sort of her sort of pre-psychoanalytic prescience and the ways they got expressed in these poems. And after I finished my analysis, I went to do a three-year course of study at a psychoanalytic center in Washington, D.C., and ended up teaching writing there. And in the course of that three-year program, um, we had to produce a writing project. And so I began to write about these correspondence that I discerned. And the title is from, is a slight um, uh, bottlerizing of a, a line from hers, The Imagination's Lit Fuse. The Imagination's Slow Fuse is lit by the possible. That's the actual line of the, of the line of the poem. So. so you've taught at numerous institutions completing your academic career at Vanderbilt. Are there any particular accomplishments from your career that you're especially proud of? Well, you know, I've participated in um, with Mark Jarman, a poet who's been out to Oregon a few times in uh, founding the MFA program in creative writing, which has done really well. And I was very much involved with convincing uh, University of Oregon graduate Major Jackson, the wonderful poet and critic in person, uh, to leave Vermont, leave snowy Vermont, and come down to Nashville. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, he came uh, to be with us. I'm very proud of both of those. But I think I am most proud of the fact that one of the buildings on campus, an interdisciplinary uh, humanities building, um, bears an inscription uh, from Emily Dickinson, uh, the brain is wider than the sky. And I'm responsible for that because at the time this building is being renovated, it's changing from the biology building to um, this new interdisciplinary humanities building. I was in the dean's office working for a few years and I was consulted about some kind of inscription. So I loved this. You know, we have the whole poem on the inside. We had to go through all the Harvard permissions and all of that to get it, but it's quite wonderful. And it seemed to me also, it had been the old biology department, which would have been where early forms of brain science would have been taught anyway. So we had the whole thing there. And I think that's my most, that's my proudest contribution to the interval. So, okay, we're coming to the end of our time. Could I ask you to read one more poem? Yes. Would you like to request one? <laughs> um. Well, I have a soft spot for plain style Ars Poetica. Okay. I don't know how it'll come off. I don't think I've ever read this one in, in public because it's a very strange looking poem on the page. I was trying to write the poem in the shape of a knife. And so I started it out with four monosyllables in the first line, and then I kept trying to bring it down um, it's not perfect, but it's a, it's an imperfect attempt. It's called Plain Style Ars Poetic. I'm a plain style poet. Um, because of that, you would have thought I would have been a fan of Gertrude Stein, the great early modernist. But I had a hard time, again, with Gertrude Stein until I got older and had sort of lived through more. Um, but there's a, uh, I chose a wonderful um, epigraph from her, um, from Tender Buttons, called Out of Selection Comes Painful Cattle which in some way uh, struck me as expressing something about my uh, uh, psychological and emotional struggles with my, my child's journey through addiction and recovery. I should add that as well. My child has now been in recovery for quite a long while, praise God. Plain style Ars Poetica. 
out of selection comes painful cattle, Gertrude Stein. For this, I need a sharp edged tool to lend my layman's hand the confidence a surgeon has taking up the scalpel. Unanesthetized, I have to cut. Thus, I slice subjects from their predicates and dissect the nouns to pare them down to empty phonemes devoid of power. I try to drain the affect out. Poetry can be a brutal art. Gertrude Stein, for example, a sniper in a tree, all amputation and surgery, bullseye, steely gaze and butchery, steady hand, sharp knife, slice the fat that rinds each word, cut them, cut them down one by one by one. Thank you, Kate, for reading that poem. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been wonderful speaking with you and hearing your, your verse. We're looking forward to your visit to the University of Oregon. Thank you very much for having me on. And I'm looking very much forward to coming to Oregon in just a couple of days. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I've been speaking with the poet Kate Daniels, the Edwin Mims Professor Emerit of English and former Director of Creative Writing at Vanderbilt University. Her most recent collection is In the Months of My Son's Recovery and was published in 2019. Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of psychoanalysis and poetry was published in 2021. On April 13th, 2023, Kate Daniels will give a reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.